Welcome to another episode of Lessons from the Cockpit. I am your host, Mark Hacera, and for over 24 years, I passed gas for a living, flying KC-135s all over the world. For 60 years, my passion has been everything about aviation. And on the Lessons from the Cockpit show, we debrief some of the most fascinating and intriguing pilots, aircrew members, maintainers, and aviation enthusiasts from all over the world. Our purpose is to hear their stories, but more importantly, what did they learn from these events that they were in, in those extraordinary and extreme military, commercial, and even general aviation flying operations? We give you, our listeners, a greater understanding of how does the aviation world work, and more importantly, expand critical thinking skills both in the air and on the ground. A lot of the stories that you hear on Lessons from the Cockpit are being told here for the very first time. Our show is supported by wallpilot.com, custom aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar. And folks, I want you to go take a look at our merch. It is incredible. The airplanes are printed on vinyl. They're cut so you can peel them off and stick them to any wall or flat surface. Some people peel them off, some people just frame them. But you can even read the warnings on the missiles on these images, particularly if you blow it up to eight feet. And we can customize these with your name, tail number, weapons load, whatever you want. On today's show, we have one of my really good friends, Colonel Gino Redmond. During Anaconda, was the vice commander of the TACC, the Tanker Airlift Control Center at Scott Air Force Base. And he's going to tell us what was going on back in the States in order to move helicopters, patients, and cargo to the Anaconda Op Area. So let's get started. Grab an adult beverage of your choice, sit down, strap in, and let's begin the Lessons from the Cockpit Show with Colonel Gino Redmond. Good morning, boss. How are you? Gino Redmond's in the house. My old squadron commander and buddy from way back. We go back a long, long time now, my Don't friend. We? Don't yep. we? And it's, it's Gino really, was my uh, squadron commander and when I was stationed in Okinawa flying that airplane right there, the TACC commander. Why don't you tell all of our listeners a little bit about your background and how you and I are connected? Yeah. I became the squadron commander of the 909th Aerial Refueling Squadron uh, in Okinawa, and I think that was 94. And uh, almost on the first meeting, at that time, you were not in the squadron, but at that time, I knew that you were the guy, one of the guys that I wanted to build uh, the new squadron around, if you will. The reason that I wanted to do that is I had inherited absolutely fantastic squadron from a guy that was a good leader too. And we had our maintenance folks. It was an outstanding squadron. My challenge was to try and figure out how to make it a better squadron or (laughs) to put it more realistically, no one wants to screw up. So the story that I have with that is I came to Okinawa it kind of is a rush thing because uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dale Bible was the guy I replaced and he had to, he had the clock was ticking for him to get to war college. To make a long story short, the interview process that I had to go through, I had to interview with the Fifth Air Force commander. At that time, that was uh, General Dick Meyer. And they set up this interview when he came down to fly Eagles to get his recurrent training or whatever. And so here I am talking to this guy. 
I'm trying to, I think I was in a flight suit too, but he was in a sweaty flight suit, still had the uh, oxygen mask ring around his face. face. And, you know, we started talking and it was who you know and what you did and where you've been and all this sort of thing. His last words to me were, first, he said, I think you're taking a squadron from the finest squadron commander in this theater. So there's a little pressure there. And then the second thing he said is he looked directly at my eye and he said, you're getting a great squadron. Don't F it up. (laughs) Those were his last words. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. So there was a, a quite a bit in my mind, there was a little bit of a pressure to do the right thing. And when I met you, I knew that what I was trying to do was get us more toward great squadron, but more towards a, relationship between the F-15s and our squadron that melded us us as the uh, 18th wing and that made us part of the war fighting team. And we can talk about that later, but that was interpersonal. So I knew a guy that knew a guy and all of this thing happened. And that's how we met because I wanted you as my flight commander. And the deal that I had to cut with your then squadron commander was I better give you a good position if you're coming back to the squadron. And uh, of course you did. And we did. So, Oh yeah. Uh, I, I was lucky. How- I got to work for jammer and then you jammer yep. Jackson. And then you, yep. and I was working on a very special project. Jammer told you I couldn't come just yet. Didn't he? That's right. He said, uh, we're waiting for the exercise. Yeah. And I don't know. Is that, is that, that's not classified the name of the No, exercise. it's not. It was called ZZ top that trained the wing to new heights. And then here we go. Here we go again. A couple captains putting together this exercise, which was fantastic. Yes. But our paths cross again later after 9-11. When I departed Okinawa and I moved on and you you started to move on, the next part where we kind of linked up was uh, we both had a really enduring feeling. The KC-135 weapons instructor course had to be stood up. You know, I was a very small bit player in that as the as the generals tried to figure that out. But I I do remember advocating for you to be in that mix in some way, shape or form. And I can't exactly remember. I don't think I called personnel. But when I heard you were in the hunt, then then I was on the phone. That's kind of how we also linked up. I had a belief that you had some tremendous, you know, skills as a flight commander and all that. But you had already emerged after ZZ Top as a guy that really knew how to put a plan together. And also the greatest advantage that you had or we had was the fact that we were working directly with our fighter guys. So you already had credibility with the Eagles and you were going to be somebody had to go to the WIC and be, uh, you know, none of them, none of the fighter guys wanted you there. They didn't believe there was a need for it. And yet, because you had already seen so much activity in the tactical refueling realm, you had some credibility in, yep. and you knew how to deal with fighter guys because we both had learned that. It's like, yeah, I know how cool you guys are and I know you finished number one in your pilot training class. That's great. Uh, and as we used to say, your job is to look good in the shower and our job is to keep that water running. So I think that we both learned how to deal with those people very well there. And it, it, it changed the trajectory of my career too, because I think it was, uh, we learned how to be tactical tanker guys. And then you went on to refine it. I mean, you, you started the school that was going to be the master's degree in tanker planning for everybody. And uh, so we ran into 
that was 94. Then we were back together talking when I was a group commander at uh, Altus. Mm -hmm. And then I went up to the TACC shortly after you had departed the TACC. So our paths were crossing constantly. And I, I, you know, honestly, I, I think probably was really based on our friendship. We were good pals and we could talk at a different level than other people talk. So I could, I could tell that you were going to be good for the tanker force. And we have to remember also that this was just after the merger between AMC came. So uh, yeah. tanker guys came into that picture. We weren't fully integrated with Big Mac, if you will. After we had combined, I was the first ops group commander at Altus that wasn't an airlift guy. And I was the first guy to be the vice commander of the TACC that that wasn't an airlift guy. So we were all plowing new ground together and establishing ourselves. And now it looks seamless. A leader in the Air Mobility Command now has done all of those different things. But back then it was new. And the weapon system was certainly the weapons instructor course that you pioneered. I just think about your kids now that are planning the next war or being heavily involved where they are in theater back in the sort of the Cold War era. And you know what, so, you know, there is a huge difference between planning of Desert Storm in Kosovo and planning Afghanistan and Iraq. And it's because of the course. Our third class was going through on 9-11, our third class, and we still weren't even validated yet. And yet look what happened. As soon yes. as those buildings were hit, we, they were already calling for us. Two of our grads went down to Tyndall and at first Air Force and began building the Noble Eagle plan. Two guys deployed over to the Kayak at, excuse me, Prince Sultan, started working all that up. You were at the TACC on 9-11, weren't you? This is a good story. And I'll tell you how this comes about. You know, pardon the language. But the morning of 9-11, we had been challenged at Air Mobility Command in the summer of 2001 because we were not getting enough flying time for our C-17 guys. It sounds so surprising now, but piled a bunch of colonels together. And our science project was to try and figure out how to get more cargo missions and more C-17 flying time. We really couldn't figure it out. And on the morning of 9-11, I had parked my car and I was walking towards the headquarters building. My, my boss, Major General Mike Woolley, was walking too. So we were walking together the meeting was scheduled to be at seven o'clock so we could have a quick meeting and get going then with the daily stuff. As we were walking into the building, I looked at my boss and I said, I am losing sleep over this. Uh, it's, it's supposed to be my baby and I, I can't make anything happen. There's just, there's no cargo out there. There's, there's no way we can make this mission happen. Uh, my boss said, Redmond, you're worrying about this too much. It, it, we've seen it. There's highs and lows, there's peaks and valleys. It'll all work out. Don't worry about it so much. And I looked at him and I, it, just as we were going in the door and I said, you know, sir, what we need is a good doggone war. I didn't use doggone, but I said, <laughs> we need a good war. And he looked at me and he said, Redmond, bite your tongue. And I said, yeah, you're right, sir. Okay. We went up to the AMC director of operations office and uh, there was there were two two star generals and uh, two colonels, and we were trying to hash this out. And it, right in the course of that meeting, somebody came in. They grabbed me. They pulled me out. They had me talk to the senior controller, and the guy says to me, "Boss, we they just an airplane just ran into the twin one of the twin towers." And I said, 
oh, I guess they were chasing King Kong crawling up the top of it. And he said, no, sir, I'm not kidding. It's just the real thing. And of course, then, you know, all of our lives changed forever at that moment. On the anniversary of 9-11, I almost always think to myself of us walking in on that bright, sunny day at Scott Air Force Base and me saying to my boss, yeah, you want me get flying time? We just need a good war. And <laughs> bite your tongue. That's the first story that I would tell you. And then there's a thousand interweek interconnected stories around that because, and here's another linkage that you and I had, because since you were already doing that, the first thing that we needed to do with all the air traffic shutting down across the world is we we had a team of FEMA guys. They were doing their annual convention in Bozeman, Montana. And it's like, okay, but everybody's grounded. All right, let's launch a mission. Essentially, we didn't have to do that. We went after you guys at Fairchild. We did an in-system select, got the guys on the horn and said, you need to fly to Bozeman and then you need to fly to New York City somewhere. And, <laughs> and, and we're it, all like going, Bozeman? What? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the only time Our a tanker first would ever been is to Bozeman, Montana out of Fairchild. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But that's that's a look at how what vast resources we had as an air force that that we could do that you know it was it was like the first of many many miracles where people go how did you guys do that well it's just the system that we had and yeah, it was a crew that had again, come in to fly a training mission yep it, it was yes. they were actually at base operations and they're and scheduling ben wyborn he said hey hang on hang on because we're watching airplanes run into buildings I talked to that aircraft commander later. So they go into Bozeman, pick up the t- the crew, and they're flying near Chicago, Gino. It's eerily quiet. He said it was the most surreal mission he'd ever flown because nobody's talking. Nobody's talking. And then he asked Chicago, hey, uh, who else is up here? And Chicago Center says, you're the only airplane flying in our airspace right now. Two F-16s out of Selfridge are capping over the top of Chicago. And go, oh, wait, it's a tanker? Yeah, we're a tanker. Uh, do you guys have any extra gas? Yeah, sure. Come on over. And so they're heading east and two F-16s join on them while they're carrying the FEMA team. Of course, he says all the FEMA bubbas are like pasted up against the windows or in the boom pod watching all this. But that's the kind of flexibility that you guys had for doing things on 9-11. And I remember talking to this aircraft commander, I can't remember his name, and he told me it was the most surreal mission I'd ever flown because nobody's talking. All of a sudden, we're doing opportune AR, and we're just going to, I think they dropped them off in D.C. first so they could change. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, it was. It went into. It went into. And then went up there. Okay. And, uh, you know, by then we hooked up some other lift for him, too, out of there, probably an 89th jet. But. Everything on that day was improvised. You know, what's what do we got? What can we do? Because immediately we needed caps. And yeah. if you're going to have a cap, you yeah. uh, you're going to have tanker. to have tankers. And, and all of those fighters were already airborne, too, weren't they? Yeah. They're all screaming for gas. And, and we're all like, OK, here we go. I remember being on alert. They went into our old alert facility, Gino, and ramped it back up. 
We didn't even know if the phone system would work. Some comm guy went out there and plugged the phone into the alert facility that hadn't been used for what, 11 years. The phone worked and that's where uh, we're all on alert. There were seven airplanes by that afternoon on alert on the Christmas tree, the sack Christmas tree at Fairchild that afternoon. Yep. And it was interesting to me because I was involved in some of those very first meetings and we were trying to set a time. How, how soon could I get, could we get airborne? And uh, there was some young captain that I don't know, he obviously didn't know what I did or had done. And he, he started telling me about, well, you, you can't get an airplane off the ground that fast. And I just, I just laughed. I said, what are you saying? And he said, well, sir, we, we can't generate a tanker and get it airborne that fast. And I said, I spent most of my early career getting off the ground that fast. So don't give me that crap. Well, it takes a long time to warm. I said the takeoff VFR, dude. I don't yeah. give it, damn. You got to yeah. meet these. Things. Yeah. You take and off so- and you go to Seattle. Okay. That's all the mission planning you need to do. Take off, go to Seattle, go to Portland, go to San Francisco. That's all you need to do. Nobody's up there flying. And and that's what all these crews that were flying these missions were talking about. He said, there's no airline traffic whatsoever. None. Zero. Well, Sluggo, one of the things that you and I worked really, really hard at when we were in Okinawa together, and we were talking about the wartime footing was we really tried to get our tanker guys, our kids, to work in, I mean, there was Kadena Freestyle. We we were always having to improvise, but I think we tried to talk to those young people and say, you're young tigers. You have a legacy from Southeast Asia. Your job is to be there and give gas to these guys and don't take no for an answer and figure things out. Be innovative. I think that's one of the things we put into those guys. I'm I'm thinking that's sort of part of the whole KC-135 tanker ethos to this very day is. Oh, and we had done how many air defense exercises, Gino? Oh, yeah. With, with tankers on Bravo patio waiting to take off when we were told to take off with the F-15s. Yep. And remember, we worked out that VFR takeoff plan with us taking off on the outside and the F-15s taking off on the inside. I mean, those were really innovative things that we were accomplishing there. Yes. Crazy. We were, and the reason that we were lucky to do that is that we had leadership. So here's another lesson learned, okay? In today's environment, we have instant communications around the world. What we always need to remember is that the smartest thing we can possibly do is empower our young aviators to let them just get the job done. And you say, I want you to do it safely. It always falls on some young man or woman to figure it out. No, no matter how much you want to micromanage, the best strategy of leadership in the aviation business, in my opinion, is to let it go, give the broad directions and let it go. But our our wing leadership there, they let us run amok. I mean, literally, <laughs> we had an independent tanker squadron over there. We could do basically whatever we wanted to do within reason. And we did it well. And we, when you and I left, uh, I mean, I was before you, but when you and I left, I think we had left a legacy that the F-15 guys respected the 909th. We were there, KC-135 guys. We we were a team. So 
once again, that's where I think you you get these ideas. That kind of leads me maybe into the funniest story of the war. I mean, 9-11 happens. Everybody's going crazy. Everything has to be done at once. Everything getting to Afghanistan in a landlocked country, every bean that was eaten, every bullet that was fired, everything had to be airlifted in. And the problems just grew exponentially. You, As Wooly said, you'd you'd turn over one rock and there'd be another snake and then another and another, or you peel back the, the layer onion and there's more. So the, the funniest story that I ever acquired from that time, it was in uh, October as we were trying to build up and get ready to, to do the kinetics in Afghanistan. And it was in the tanker airlift control center, which they now call the 618th AOC, I think, is they've already, the old guys fought it and you got to call it the TACC, but it has become an AOC now. And there was a special room, we called it the glass room, that was sheltered from the regular area so that you could talk and discuss and not violate, you know, quiet stuff that was going on outside. They were, we were there in the glass room and it was right before the first mission to go into Karshi Kanabad. K2 was used uh, initially, and it was was a spec ops base, really. It wasn't anything that we ever used as mobility, but we needed to get that base open. We need to put our controllers in there, et cetera. And there was a lot of nervousness going around because we had just begun pioneering night vision air goggles in the C-130, and we hadn't even started doing it in the C-17 yet. The question came up, uh, is this air crew that's going to fly the first mission into Karshi Kanabad, it had to go at night, you know, for force protection and worries about surface-to-air threats. So it had to go at night. It was going into a blacked-out field. Everybody was really nervous in the service because it if you remember, we didn't even have all of our C-17s yet. We only had about, what, maybe a 90 or 100 at that time, maybe a little bit more. As we It was a small fleet. Small fleet. We're, we're, we're risking one of our best assets to get into Karshi Combat. The two stars are sitting there, and we're having this discussion, and we've got another two-star general. So we had uh, General Brady, General Woolley. And then on the other side, at the J3 level, we had uh, uh, General Welser. And everybody wanted to know, can that crew do it? Can they safely do it? So they look at me and they go, Gino, find that crew. Find out if they're okay to fly this mission. Well, you'd think in our modern world that you'd be able to reach out and touch those guys instantly, but you couldn't. We knew that there was a C-17. We knew that the mission would fly, uh, but we didn't know where they were. And the long story short is that finally, after many phone calls, uh, we tracked this guy down and he was at Inserlik Air Base in Turkey. That's where he was going to fly from. I said, okay, ring his, he, you know, that was, I didn't get his, I didn't have a cell phone. So ring his billeting room. So here we are in ring, 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 sleepy voice answers. I've obviously violated his 12 hour crew rest. So, and I said, these were my words. I said, um, Captain Jones, I wish I knew the guy's name, the kid's name now. Uh, Captain Jones, this is Colonel Redmond of the Tanker Airlift Control Center. Now I've got his attention, okay? This is not just somebody yeah. born. Him. This is somebody of a semi-importance. And I said, I'm calling on behalf of Major General Mike Woolley, the TACC commander, and Major General Roger Brady, who is the AMC Director of Operations. Yes, sir. 
how can I help you? And I said, we all want to know if you are absolutely comfortable flying this mission tomorrow. Can you do it? Are you comfortable? There's a long pause. And he goes, sir, I fly a C-17. It's the best airlift airplane on the planet. And I have on my airplane dual GPS, dual INS. He said, sir, I've already built an approach into my mission computer into K2. And then he pauses and he said, sir, with all due respect, Ray Charles could find <laughs> K2 in C-17. And I, I, I paused for a second and I said, Captain, best of luck to you. I'm, I'm glad you're doing this mission. You're the right guy and all this of Godspeed. And then I just broke down laughing. I actually dropped to my knees on the floor and I started laughing. And you can only imagine the tension in that room as we tried to put all the parts and pieces together. The tension was palpable. It was like a cloud. And here's Redmond dropping to his knees laughing. Instantly, the two generals look right at me and go, what do you think is so funny? And then I relayed the story and everybody cracked up. And it was just a moment. It was like... After that moment, we had lost the focus on, we were so busy trying to move things that we'd lost the focus on some young captain and his co-pilot and the loadmaster were going to get this job done and they were cocky and they could do it. Who knows? Same legacy that uh, got that last tanker come or last C-17 coming out of uh, Kabul. Kabul. Yeah. So, the, the story, again, it was a reminder to me that I never, ever forgot is that if you train and equip and empower your airmen to do a mission, they'll do it. And they'll do it in ways that surprise you, uh, you know, to this day. That was a big story and, a, and the lesson learned there, obviously. Ray Charles can find it. <laughs> yep. Ray Charles could find it in the C-17. The air campaign is like kicking off. There's... B-52s, B-1s, the USS Enterprise is leading the charge. Now you've got this great, big, huge joint fight going on. But, man, we didn't have any targets. You know, we didn't know what to do. It was crazy because when I was talking to Dewey Dora, who was the guy that was planning from our school, first couple days we're bombing things, but there's no coherent strategy yet because we just don't know what's up there and then right we, we did it and yeah exactly yes. we did it we pulled it off and we pull it off with a carrier carrier air wing eight escorting b-52s and b-1s they're dropping on things but then all of a sudden we get into this time period where now we own the country we kick the taliban out and we find out that, hey, there may be a whole bunch of guys down here in this Shycott Valley. And we're all like, going, what Shycott Valley? What, what are you talking about? And there's no plan. Nobody's talking. And Skip Scott is the Dermob 4. And I'll never forget this, Gino. He says, something's coming, Sluggo, and I don't know what it is. What had you guys heard back at the TACC about this Anaconda thing? Had you heard anything at all? We, we did, but I, w- I want to go into another personal story okay. that I think that Perfect. once again exhibits people to people stuff. You remember in the beginning of the conflict, you guys were really, we were all troubled with threat working group because yeah. 
There was yeah. all these reports of fire and all that sort of thing. And people were yeah. really scared to put that brand new C-17 or relatively new C-17 into combat. So I got a call one night and it was from a Marine One Star, uh, Marine Amphibious Group Commander. And he, and he says to me, he said, well, this is Brigadier General. Um, good God, help me with the name is Mattis. Um, Mattis. He said, this Mattis. is General Mattis. And I said, yes, sir. And, and he had done his homework. He had talked to Rusty Finley. He knew what the C-17 was capable of doing. He knew that they had uh, been kind of working off the books on night vision goggle approaches. He did his homework and he said, I understand that you're the guy to talk to about this threat working group thing. And I said, well, yeah, I routinely do battle with them about getting our people in there. And I was the, I was the guy that was the advocate of, we have troops in contact. Now we have people in combat. This is not a time to completely worry about our precious airlifters. We, we may need to send these guys into harm's way. Mattis and I have this conversation and I said, listen, sir, here's the problem that we have. We need a corridor around. He was trying to get his guys in and take over um, uh, Kandahar, right? Mm-hmm. He, yeah. he was trying to open up that airfield. Yeah. And um, he, he said, I, I will do it. I'll secure the airfield. I'll give you a five mile ring around the airfield so that your C-17s can spiral in. I said, but I'm not the guy that makes these decisions, sir. In about two hours, my boss will be in. You need to talk to him. Two hours later, General Woolley comes in. He has his first cup of coffee. I brief him that some one-star general, me and Mattis, is going to call. Well, Mattis does call, and the three of us are in a conference call. And this is this is no kidding how it happens. General Mattis is just a one-star, and he says to my two-star, he says, General Woolley, I give you my word of honor as a Marine that I will secure the airfield for you and that your C-17s will not be shot down. Word of honor. That's what he used. And with that, Wooly says, okay, I got this. We're going to make this happen for you, General Mattis. Boom. Hangs up the phone. He says, I'm going to go upstairs and talk to the four star. You go downstairs and tell the threat working group this is going to happen. And they got to figure out a way to let some waivers in. That operation came down. It was the most successful air land combat drops or air land missions ever in the history of Air Mobility Command, for sure. And it happened because General Mattis said, I give you my word. Once again, this is an interpersonal relationship. And that's how things were run. So uh, to transition, you were, you were asking about Anaconda. We knew that something big was coming down because, uh, and the reason Skip Scott knew it was because General Handy had been out in theater and he had gone around not only to see the air mobility operations, but as a four star, he was talking with uh, I the guys. About that. The war. And, I forgot and about that. I forgot about that. Handy came back and he said to us, privately this is not going well he said they're trying to make plans in mountainous terrain they have no artillery to back this up he said this is not going to go well okay so we were forewarned and then for the next what 10 days it was all about operation anaconda and we were going on and that stuff we knew that it 
couldn't go. And then as, as the operation began to start, right, the weather that night, you're more familiar with it. It was really crap. Blizzard, a blizzard on top of those mountains in that valley. They had a blizzard that dumped about six to eight inches of snow for two days on the day we were supposed to kick it off. And we got Hagenbeck sent us his Frago 110 page brief PowerPoint brief five days prior. And I remember Skip Scott going, holy smokes, what's going to happen to us? Yep. So and I know he called back to you guys. He called back to you guys to go, Hey, here's this thing. Here's what's going to happen. You know, it got us all spun up. Yeah. I mean, we didn't really know how we were going to do it. Once again, we didn't know how, how many assets we have because we were just in the beginning of the tanker elevator too. We didn't even have full blivets at, at uh, Bagram yet. So uh, here's how I remember that night coming down. So it's daytime over there, but I was the night guy. So I would be the acting commander of the tanker airlift control center. And I was in the classroom and I had my key kernels around me. If I tell the story, it's not making me the hero because I was only gathering inputs. I was just the first among equals. And I remember we knew Anaconda was was coming on and we linked into the Predator feed uh, for the first helicopter or the second helicopter. So I was in the glass room watching this thing in that green vision stuff. We were we were all standing there and we saw the rounds coming in to that would have been Razor 2, right? Not the. The first if one was, was Razor the guy 3. that took the big hits. Yeah, the Razor. That's Razor 3. That's the one he falls off of. Yep. Okay. So we we saw the rounds impacting. We could tell. I mean, it was a sickening feeling because you could tell oh, that yeah. somebody was getting oh, shot gosh. and dropping. It was yeah. so, so sickening. And then we were able to obviously know that we had two helicopters down. Okay, they're they're down. They're out of commission. Colonels and I uh, sort of consulted a little bit, and I said, we, we have got to be able to react to this because they, they need helicopters in theater, and they don't even know it yet. So I called up Dover. I had the guys call up Dover, and we put two C5s into uh, Bravo, I think, alert, yeah. and it raised hell. Like, what the heck are you doing? So the but first it still thing was the happened, right decision. That's the it was. crazy thing, Gino. It was, the right, it was the right decision, but man, I'm sure you got a lot of heat over that. Oh, yeah. The Anyways. wing commander, the wing commander called the powers at B saying, What the hell's going on? Two and a half hours later, General Woolley walks in and he goes, Ratman, what did you do last night? Everybody's pissed at us. Why, why can I not leave you alone? And I said, sir, we put the C5s on alert. He said, there's no request. There's no requirement. I said, it's just because they haven't gotten around to figuring that out yet, sir. That requirement will come down today. I guarantee it. And now we're ready. So we had the two, two in alert. And later that day, it came in. And the miracle of that is from the time the Army called, 19 hours later, we had two new helicopters in. I mean, just like that, or moving towards the theater. I think that's that's probably an exaggeration, but we responded. We were able to get those helicopters moving in 19 hours, which at the glacial pace of C-5 breaking in, in whatever, it, that was a, a little teeny bit of a miracle that we were on top of. 
Yeah. But once again, it was the group of colonels and lieutenant colonels that I was with that we saw it. We were we were appalled. We were just sickened. We knew we couldn't contribute anything right then and there, but by God, they were going to need it. They, they were going to need helos. Absolutely. So because that's how that story comes about. Well, and the Chinook was the only helicopter that could get up there because yes. the mountain was so high. The Chinook was the only helicopter that could get up there. Gino, you have to understand these are 160 soar helicopters. They got all of the latest equipment on them and three of them are down. One's in a valley. One's back at Gardez at the safe house, all shot up. And the third one doesn't even make it off the mountain. We, we actually drop bombs on it and just blow it to smithereens. And so you leaning forward, see, that's something that tanker guys intuitively understand. We, we think forward and we think ahead of things that are happening. And it doesn't surprise me at all that you came up with this idea of putting them on alert, knowing that they're going to need two replacements over there. And sure enough, those things got over there and flew their tail ends off. Yeah. During that time. And, period. You no, know, like I said, I was the guy that made the decision, but I wasn't, I, it was a group idea that we needed to do that. But it was so funny because when the general came in that morning, he goes, Redmond, what the hell? I leave you alone for six know, hours. You've got the whole world. I left you alone without like adult that. supervision and look what you do. <laughs> yes, that's right. But Gino, you just said something I didn't know. You guys were watching the predator feed. I didn't know yep. that. Yeah, I didn't, know and that. I don't know how they did it, but I I remember clearly seeing it. it just the the you know the whirl, whirling of the rotor blades and the tracers. It yeah. it was it was sickening. And that was a CIA predator too. That wasn't but, that wasn't an Air Force predator. So that was some really good work tapping into that and yeah, seeing and, what was going on. And you can imagine, Gino, we felt like you guys. Okay, I will never forget as long as I live the the oh that went across the whole entire chaos when razor one comes in and lands and is immediately getting tagged. And we watched those three guys on the ramp go down. I'll never forget that. It's still, it, there's a chill going up down my spine right now. Yeah. Yeah. Me because too. Of that. Me too. Because of that, time. watching that. And those three guys are dead, wounded. They're, they're dead coming off the ramp. You know? It was surreal because it wasn't a movie. No, you know, it, it looked like Hollywood, but it was real. Yeah. And then Bagram runs out of gas. Okay. <laughs> so what a great story we have there, because once again, I, I think it might've been your idea, right? Or somebody, you were, you and Van Gilder, uh, where my mind went was, I was thinking that we just, did we have enough runway to get the tankers in there themselves? And I was really looking to try and do something with the KC-10. That was where my mind was. And then all of a sudden, that idea pops out from you or John Van Gilder and XOO. I don't really know. I, I can't tell you where it was the great a C-130 idea. weapons officer at the CAOC, Rocco. That's where really? it came from. That's where it came and from. Rocco goes, why don't we just airmail the gas? And we all went, oh, yeah. But it took four C-17s that were already busy doing something else, didn't it? Yep. <laughs> and. The story behind those C-17s getting out there is another personal, interpersonal story, because if you'll remember, even in the beginning, when you're trying to do a war, there's still everybody's arguing about who owns what and who's transferring what. The, the big kind of AMC attitude was, we just can't let random C-17s go over there and be at the beck and call <laughs> of the theater commander. 
and, and it was a big fight. It was uh, roles and missions and stuff like that. Yeah. And Rich Minnemeyer was General Minnemeyer was the guy over there then yeah. and uh, or involved a little bit. Yeah. And what we kind of worked out is, well, how about if we deploy these four C-17s? They won't be chopped to you. They'll be ours, but you can kind of use them as you need to. We were really hanging it out to this day. Yeah, we uh, when I get together with Minimeyer, we were. We just go. It worked out perfectly, and we eventually got top cover. But to do it was, well, I remember Wooly saying, "God, we're all going to go to jail. <laughs> we're all going." But to it jail. just needed to be done. Look at the value that you got out of those airplanes, right? I can't. It must have been like Christmas when they they came into theater. And talk about timing too. We actually made another air refueling anchor. They wouldn't let us put it over Bagram. We had to put it like southwest of Bagram. That was an incredible idea of elevatoring gas up and down. The C-17 would come in. And the first one, remember, came in with the bladders and dropped it all off. They spread those things all out and started filling them up. It went up to a tanker, fills up to its landing, max landing weight, goes back down, offloads that gas, goes back up to another tanker to get enough gas to go home. But I, I remember the APU on that thing was busted. They had to bring in a huffer on the next one. Oh, really? Yes. The, one of those C-17s APU broke the first one that landed. And God, what was the general's name? I can picture his face, but I can't remember his name. He was down there at Bagram. He says, get that thing off the ramp. Well, we can't, sir. The APU's busted. We can't start the engines. And we had to to put a huffer on the second C-17 landed. Man, that was a full ramp for a while. And then the huffer obviously starts the first one. They put the huffer in the back of the C-17 and they both left at the same time. But they were also delivering Apaches too, remember? We were delivering fuel oh, yeah. and Apaches because remember those first set of Apaches just got blown up like crazy. And then finally that first week goes terrible but we finally catch up. I'll never forget this. The Bagram army guy at Bagram, I think Hagenbeck was going, make it stop. We got enough gas. And they had, I think, three of those 600,000 gallon bladders full of gas. But you're yep. right, Gino. Yep. That was, we're doing stuff that's never been done before. Yep. It was interesting because I would, I had a lot of time. A lot of dead time in the evenings between those phone calls as the people worked out. And I, I do remember, as everybody does, you got to have establish a battle rhythm. Yeah. You've got to get used to the hours yep. that you're working and all that. I remember I just was totally exhausted just all the time because my day, I think I was probably doing 16 or 17 hours. I mean, I was falling Easily. asleep in the daily meetings and I fell asleep driving my car home on North Lincoln, I remember. And my wife had to take me to work and pick me up for a couple of days. And I remember her saying to me, this is insane. You can't even stay awake to drive. And yet you're supposed to be crisp and make these kinds of decisions, uh, being exhausted. We we're all that way. Yeah. You weren't getting sleep. No. Uh -huh. I was I was sending uh, melatonin in the mail to skip Scott so he could try to get some sleep. It once again becomes this interpersonal thing. Just imagine we didn't know how to solve that problem. It was it was like, uh, I don't know. I don't know how we do this. And yet, boom, group of people, innovative, 
throwing an idea out and it turned out to be a brilliant one. We actually, typical weapon school guys, draw it on a whiteboard. Okay, here's how you deed. Okay, they're going to come down this way. And then we went to Skip Scott. And, and of course, you talked about leadership and pushing responsibility down. Skip Scott says, make it happen, guys. Uh, a lieutenant colonel and a major, make it happen. And we did. You know, Anaconda comes to a close. I think the last week is when we finally get all of us get on the same page. I'm talking with you guys back at the TACC. I'm talking to you on the phone. And and man, Gino, you do not know how glad I was when I picked up the phone and heard your voice on the end of the phone. Well, knowing you, knowing your capabilities and you knowing mine. And I think yep. that's that's about relationships. And yes, I remember when I was writing the book, talking to the deputy director that was actually in the crow's nest, managing the fight, Moose Lakaitis, and him telling me, he goes, think about this, Sluggo. We all knew each other. We all knew each other. When it came time to do shock and awe, our network was even bigger than it was during Operation Anaconda. You know, yeah. I've given some thought after you told me what you were wanted to talk about. And I know that most of your stuff is flying related. And if it's not directly flying related, it's like what we did. Yeah. But what struck me as I started thinking about that in you and I talking, geez, two, three times a week, John Van Gilder and XOO talking to you every day, probably. And yeah. what is amazing to me is even though this is a war and we were prosecuting a war, it is the people that yeah. make that happen. It, there's always a story yeah. behind the people. If you think about it, what an amazing connection. And all of that would have happened just fine if it had been a whole bunch of strangers because the Air Force is professional enough. I think of the small world that we had and maybe I it's know. just a thank you thing, but because you were there and I knew you, I was talking to you about every day. I was talking yeah. to Skip Scott every day. And it's it's the person to person things that I think. And so if I was trying, if I was trying to say a lesson learned for anybody that's involved in uh, Air Force or aviation, yeah. I would tell them that almost more than anything, networking is important at every level of the yeah. operation. Yeah. Uh, from the beginning boom operator, you just never know where, yeah. where it's going to connect. The guy that was sitting in the, as the deputy director during Anaconda became the air wing commander, the vice CAG, deputy CAG on the Roosevelt during shock and awe. And he spoke See? about this. He said, Sluggo, look around the room. How many of us knew each other? Yep. Now the TACC is transitioning into shock and awe coming up. Yep. Yep. And you know, that for that portion of the thing, you were still playing the game. I had retired by then and, and gone on to do other things, but draw in you in your book, you very eloquently told a story and connected that story to a lesson learned. I think for me, when I came away and I sit now in my rocking chair and I think about things, it, it will be just this week that I've been retired 20 years. And it's oh, been, wow. if you think about it, it's 20 years since, since nine 11, since we're oh, doing yeah. that, but it does, it, it all boiled down to interpersonal relationships, trust. Is this guy telling the truth, you know, honesty. 
And then sometimes just, I think in, in war and in combat operations, the axiom is very, very true about it's, it's much more important to beg for forgiveness than to ask permission <laughs> because we couldn't have gotten it done without some serious out of the box thinking all the way around. All the way around. I mean, think about setting up the air bridge and getting everything across. And I remember AMC wrote that after action report where it said, I think on the 6th of March, 120 fighters are in the air at one time coming over. Why don't you talk to us? 120, I think is what it was. Yeah, there was 120 fighters that were in the air like on March 6th on the way over. 120 airplanes are getting refueled on the air bridge. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners what an air bridge is and how we set that up so that we can move iron across? The air, the air bridge is uh, really a KC-135, KC-10 tanker-centric operation. And it's designed to literally make a bridge across a pond of water to get our forces from the States to over to theater. And in our case, we we needed two air bridges, one to go across the North Atlantic and one to get the Pacific operation going so that we could oh, I forgot uh, about that. make I Diego forgot Garcia about that. work. And so what an air bridge is basically is you deploy tankers uh, to some strategic locations on the coast and then you you have about three refueling points. One on the eastern coast of off the eastern coast of the United States, one somewhere in the middle, and one closer to the end, at least at minimum. Yeah. So that cargo planes or fighters can taken along by a mother ship, KC-135 or KC-10, and get gas and move across the, the pond. It's called a bridge because it's literally a, a bridge of gas stations across the water. Yeah. The one off the East Coast was up near Pease. I used to go to it all the time. 206 went from Yarmouth across Nova Scotia. You know, and then there was another one, I think, near Reykjavik, south of Iceland. And then there was yep. another one going into Europe. They would go around Gibraltar. And there was more set up at Siganella. We had airplanes at Siganella and lodges that helped move all this stuff over. And again, we had to create this air bridge. One of the things I remember about this air bridge, we put more airplanes at Milden Hall Lodges and Siganella, and it was all the guard E models. We couldn't bring them into theater because the engines in the heat just were pigs. We could only use our models in theater. And boy, did I catch heat for that. Yep. <laughs> because that was a rice bowl issue and they, they wanted to play in the big war, right? Yep. Yeah. But they couldn't take off with enough gas. It was already 100 degrees in April. We had already been fighting the war for like three weeks, but all the bomber missions, all the uh, global strike missions and everything, it was perfect for those guys to do that. Yep. The E-models to do those things coming out of there. They had bombers coming out of Fairford too. Yep. And the, the, the thing to remember also is that at the same time as we were trying to do this Atlantic air bridge to get people into theater, we were going the other direction because our operating guidance was, on the first night of the war, the B-2s were going to put bombs on target and recover into Diego Garcia. And I think that was, I think that was like six ARs yeah. to get him. They moved from Whiteman all the way over 
put their bombs on the target, then came back and recovered in Diego Garcia and then came home. So that alone was a, a nightmare. And, yeah. you know, we, we learned some things there, too, because if you remember our operations in Kadena, well, that was our backyard. We always had yeah. guys down in Diego Garcia or working out of Utapau. And I remember, you know, I had been the attache there, so I had a familiarity with that. But the 909th knew Utapau. And and one of the very first things that I did, I had to go brief on a video teleconference at the depth sec, sec state level. And I had to convince them that they needed to get permission to fly across the Isthmus of Craw. In other words, yeah down around Phuket, Thailand. Yeah. They didn't understand, the army didn't even understand. Why do you need to do that? Well, because it's yeah. gonna save five hours of flying time and boatloads of fuel. Yeah, um, without having to go through the Straits of Malacca. Yeah, so. And and remember also, Gino, we did flexible deterrent option Bravo out of Guam because North Korea raised its ugly head again, remember? Yep. We had yep, bombers and tankers on Guam, and it was a lot of tankers too. It was like 24, if I remember right, that got deployed because Mac McDonald told me, Sluggo, we're out of tankers. We're, we don't have any more. <laughs> we're done. You got to run the war with 110 tankers. And I'll never yeah, that's forget. It. Uh, yeah, that's it. And I remember telling the map cell chief, you have about 15 million pounds a day that you can use. Well, we've got Sluggo, we've got this big shock and on opening night. You don't have gas for it. And I remember how that went around the map cell. <laughs> it's uh, it's funny that, you know, we're so connected on all this and it's it's two guys telling war stories. But there were a lot of just interpersonal things. I, maybe I shouldn't even tell this story, but I will anyway. And you can edit it out if you need to. <laughs> so it was early on in October, you know, as as Congress does, they want to have a look at things. So. We got this call. Senator Joe Biden is going out to theater. Okay, fine. And they passed it around. Absolutely under no circumstances is he to get mill air. Under no circumstances. Are we all straight on that? Senator Biden does not fly on a military airlift airplane. Yes, sir. Got it. Yes, sir. It was brief from the four star to the three star to the two star to the colonels. Everybody knew it. On the night that uh, we don't, I don't, to this day, I don't remember, maybe it was a Learjet or something that uh, Biden took into theater. It was not Miller. So he ends yeah. up on the ramp at Bagram and he's wanting to get on a C-17. And the whole organization has been briefed. No, he will not do that under any circumstance, period, dot, full stop. Okay, fine. So I get this call from uh, Major Jeff Bil Bigelow. And you might remember Jeff. I do know Jeff. Right? I Jeff remember was Jeff. one of our... KC-135 navigators at uh, Altus. So I, I knew Bigelow. I knew he was a great guy. guy. Great guy. He was a good guy. So Bigelow gets on the phone and he goes, you know, who am I talking to? And I go, it's Gino. And he goes, oh, oh, sir. Oh, am I glad to hear your voice? Oh, I got a big problem. I got to tell you. So blah, blah, blah. He said, Senator Biden's here and he's really demanding to get on this airplane. And I know what we're not supposed to do, but he said, I need some help. And I said, Bigelow, let him get on the airplane. I, I just made that call. And I think it was based on the fact that I'd seen in the old C-12 days in Thailand, how turning a congressman down would go bad on our budget and the Air Force and all that. I said, put him on board. Yes, sir. I got it. Wham. 
And the guys are all looking at me going, boy, oh boy, we're going to catch some hell over this one. And I go, it was the right thing to do. I don't care. It was the right thing to do. And I was kind of alone. I was a little bit lonely in that. Decision. Yeah, I'll so bet. Then, then I'm standing there and the phone rings again. They go, Colonel Redmond, you're not going to believe this, Gino. It's the Secretary of State, General Powell, on the phone. Okay. And I pick up the phone and it's, uh, uh, this, is, this is General Powell. Who am I speaking to? And I said, sir, this is Gino Redmond. I worked for you when I was in CVAI. Remember that night you caught me peeing in your bushes on 4th of July? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, Gino. You know, and then instant bond. All right. And that was networking. That was, I, I knew this guy. Uh, and luckily, because I had kind of a joint job. And he says to me, I need you to do me a big favor, Gino. He said, you got to let your guys know that Biden needs to get on that airplane. I said, sir, we have already authorized it. It's a go. He's getting on as we speak. And he said, thank God, that's great. So I said, the only thing I need from you is tomorrow morning, sir, you got to fly some top cover because things are going to go ugly. I'm going to catch hell. <laughs> and so he said, no, I got that. I got that. He could do it because he was not only the secretary of state, but he was a general. So the story actually gets better. Everything is happy ending. Biden gets home. No problems. And I never heard another word about it because it turned out to be the right thing to do. A week later, Powell goes out to theater. He lands in a C-17 at Bagram. And of course, who is there to greet him? But Bigelow. Major Bigelow. Stairs come down. As I heard it, Powell gets off the airplane. He asks for Major Bigelow. Jeff comes up and says, you know, I'm Major Bigelow. And Powell looks at him and says, Major Bigelow, I got a question for you. Did I save your ass or did you save my ass? (laughs) And, you know, we laugh about it. And I think over the years, I've probably trumped up that story to make it sound much more funny or much more interesting. But the, the evolution of it is, once again, I have a young major that I have known now for a cumulative total of six or seven years. Yeah. We've flown airplanes together. We've got a bond of trust and he's calling asking for my help. And here it is. I'll have to make a decision. So yeah. uh, it's interpersonal stuff. Always, always has been, always will be. Yeah. And, and man, I'll never forget being on the phone with you and John Van Gilder. Uh, it's March. We're moving to iron now. Things are ramping up in theater. We're starting to drop more bombs. More airplanes are coming over. And again, you talk about interpersonal relationships. Van Gilder and I were co-pilots at Peace together, flying in the ACE program. That's how far we went back. And now he's XOO and is moving stuff. And I'll never forget one night talking to him on the phone. And John just says to me, he goes, Sluggo, I'm so glad you're there. Things are just different when you're there. You know, it's just different having you on the end of the phone, knowing those voices, knowing those personalities was, was truly what got a lot of stuff done. We're doing a lot of stuff that tankers have never done, like putting them in Iraqi airspace, not only having them go to Iraqi airspace, but planning that. And that must have drove the threat working group nuts. I can only imagine. I, I'm sure it was. I, I, you know, I was not involved in it at that point in time. Uh, 
because I was out in June, but. See, and I'll tell you what happened. I'll tell you what happened, Gino. I met Mosley coming up the stairs one day. He's at the top of the stairs. I'm coming upstairs. He goes, Sluggo, I need to talk to you for a few minutes. This is like on day three of Shock and Awe. And I go, what's up, boss? He goes, the army is truly outrunning everything. The gas is in the wrong place. And I said, okay, you know, what do you want us to do? There's 19, this is how he put it. There's 19-year-old kids getting shot at it and Najaf. The tankers cannot stay back and stay safe. You guys are going to have to assume some of the risk like the rest of us. Sluggo, I want you to move tankers into Iraq airspace. Just figure out how to do it. That's all he said. Just figure out how to do it. And I said, okay, boss, we're on it. And I remember going up to Mike Taylor, who was on the initial cadre with us setting up the school and saying, Mosley just met me at the top of the stairs. we got to move tankers into Iraq. He goes, man, it's too early. It's too early. I said, Mike, we just got to figure out how to do it because the airplanes are coming too far to come to Saudi Arabia. The gas has got to be closer to Baghdad. And we did. We figured it out. We did something really innovative again by having a four ship come in with two, uh, the two ship on the tanker and a two ship running around looking for people that are trying to shoot at us. And then the A-10 Bubba, <laughs> the A-10 LNO going, Sluggo, those are targets. Give them to me. And then the special forces guys going, hey, wait a minute. We can help you with this. All of that group coming together to solve that problem was, I think, one of the big lessons learned of the shock and awe campaign was we had tankers plan to go into enemy airspace with fighters protecting us, fighters looking for targets, and the soft guys actually looking for the artillery pieces and the missiles, the mobile SAMs that are shooting at us and everything, and wiping them out. It was one of those amazing things, like you said, your network continues to build while you're doing stuff. So we we, we old old gray hairs. We we try to not refight the battle. And I guess our legacy, if we if we had one, is we imbued our KC-135 crews to know that there was a mission to do, and uh, they they have yet they have never failed. They've no. never failed us. No. And you know what, Gino, when I told all the, the squadron commanders at each one of the bases, I told them all, I said, Mosley met me at the top of the stairs, 19 year old kids are getting shot at all of the tanker squadron commanders go, okay, Sluggo, as long as we're protected, we'll be fine. And they went and did it. And, and that was that there was only one squadron commander that kind of gave us a little bit of grief, but later on it all worked out. So. Yep. And if you think about it, you can trace the roots of, your and I relationship, do you remember how we talked about the have a protection plan, how you practice it in ZZ Top, you drilled it into us. Yep. And then we went up with our guys and we did a stick. Remember, you were a stick figure tanker talking about how to get rid away from the threat. Yep. Ah, sir, that's never going to happen. We're so far away from that. That'll never happen. Oh, brother. And it and it did. So yep. shock and awe changed never, all that. Tankers are moving forward in a lot of places. It's crazy. So, yep. And now they've equipped the KC 46. So it's a calm note as well. I'd be curious 
as to how many of those lessons we learned the hard way or the easy way or you instructed. And there is one of your contemporaries. There's some tanker Bubba that graduated from the WIC and he's sitting somewhere forward looking at all those caps yep. uh, flying over Poland and Romania and all that. Making oh, sure absolutely. There's yeah. Absolutely. Hey, I'll tell you so, a great story I just heard from uh, the squadron commander at Altus for the 46. The airplane is so networked now that they just recently went to red flag. And because of the information in the cockpit, everything that's happening in the KC-46, the tanker crew saw an aggressor leaker get through and called it out to the AWACS. The AWACS went and put somebody on it, shot the thing down. The tanker guys saw it first in their cockpit on the 46. No kidding. That airplane's going to be a great, I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of bad, press about that airplane but once they get this worked out that's going to be a fantastic piece of machinery that uh, is going to have its own place on the battlefield you're exactly right well gino we've been going for an hour and a half i know you've got uh, somewhere to go in about a half hour at 11 o'clock any final words for us there brother i'm going to just reiterate one more time i i think we fight we fight wars in the air and uh, our job has always been kind of being uh, tanker people, but wars are won by the people flying the machines. Uh, they're not, they're not won by the, the generals making the calls in the Pentagon. It's, it's up to each captain level guy, each master sergeant. They're the people that work together to, to win the war. And it's, it's so much done because I know you, I trust you a network of people that know each other. That's why we are the air force that we are. And it's because of great leaders that I work for like you that, that let us do some of these crazy things that people were going, that'll never work. We'll never use that at Kadena. What a great time. Holy smokes. General Cliver working for bigs, general, uh, general Bigham, Randy Bigham. I mean, there couldn't have been better leadership no. at one place and at one time than there was at Kadena when you and I were there in 94, 95. Somewhere, somehow, I saw a picture the other day of uh, of a KC-135. I, I don't know if, where it was. I remember making a comment because it was a 135 and it had the young tiger patch right where we had it on our mm-hmm. airplane. And yeah. I remember we did that our, on our own. We just said, hey, let's put a, I went to Chief Winserling and said, how about if we did? Yeah, I can do that, boss. And he said, but we, you know, that's illegal. Noah's art is illegal. And I said, nobody's going to notice it. It's just for us. It's just for our team. And one day I'm sitting at my desk and Bigham calls me and he goes, hey, dude. Yes, sir. It's really funny today. After I refueled, I went out and parked on the left wing. And he said, there's this crazy decal on your airplane. I said, yeah, that's pretty cool, isn't it, sir? And he goes, yeah, uh, who gave you the permission to do that? And I said, oh, I, you know, we just thought it would be cool, sir. And he goes, yeah, okay. All right, young, fine. Yeah, Should have yeah. asked me. I probably would have said yes anyway, but okay, fine. The Young and, Tiger uh, Tanker Task Force. Yeah, and to this day now, uh, I see on it on your, yeah. your airplane, but we, we, see it, we see it everywhere. They're starting to revive it, and we know our history. Yeah, you need to go, and I'm – I've run my time, buddy. Hey, but remember, we found that flag, the Young Tiger Task Force flag balled up in a closet. Remember that? 
Yep, we did. And we had that thing dry cleaned and, and you had it framed and we put it in our bar and that's the tiger that's on that decal. I remember you went out and had that thing drawn up somehow or something like that to make those decals because we found that young tiger task force flag from Vietnam war in a closet in a box. Yep. That crazy. Yeah. That, that, that speaks to our heritage though. That speaks to our heritage. Well, Gino, I'll let you go because I know you've got another appointment. Thanks for being on the Lessons from the Cockpit show today, Gino. And uh, like I've told you before, man, you are one of the best squadron commanders I've ever worked for. And I'm so glad that you and I sat by that fire pit and went through all the chapters of my book before I even started writing it. You had the stories. You had the ringside seats logo for every war we ever did together. So... Uh, always a pleasure talking to you and I, good luck with this podcast. I hope the listeners have enjoyed these little war stories. All right. Thanks again, Gino. See you. Wow. That was a great conversation. Gino was probably one of the best squadron commanders I've ever worked for. I was fortunate to have three really good ones when I was at Kadena and all of them were fantastic. We spent two weeks with Gino and his wife in Belleville, Illinois. We were cleaning out a house that we had been renting. And in the evenings, we would sit by his fireplace in the backyard, and I went through everything I wanted to talk about in my book, Tanker Pilot, Lessons from the Cockpit. That was really the first time I codified what I wanted to put in the book, and I did so bouncing off ideas off of Gino Redmond. And I owe him a debt of gratitude for sitting and listening to all these different stories and the lessons learned that I want to put in the book and the format that I used for the book. The Lessons from the Cockpit podcast is financially supported through the efforts of Wall Pilot, custom aviation art for the walls of your home office or hangar. These are printed four, six, and eight feet on vinyl that you can peel off and stick to any flat surface. A lot of people just frame the images. We also do custom images of any airplane a customer would want. If you flew F-15Es as a pilot or a WIZO, Wall Pilot can put your name, weapons load, the exact tail number you flew with, the unit you flew with, we can do all of the markings for them, and we even have the ability to do some of the nose art that have been on Strike Eagles that have deployed over to the Gulf. For all of you crew chiefs out there, we do also right side views and we can put the crew chief's name on the right side views of all of these images that we create at Wallpilot. So please go by wallpilot.com and take a look at the ready to print images that are already there. There's 113 of them that you can pick from today from World War II all the way up to modern F-22s. And that's where we get our financial support to continue the Lessons from the Cockpit podcast. Next week, I'm going to do my view and my experiences on the Battle of Roberts Ridge and Operation Anaconda. I was the chief of the air refueling control team at the Prince Sultan Air Base Combined Air and Space Operations Center south of Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And I had to do the air refueling plan for Operation Anaconda. And there's a really unique story behind all of that. Thanks again for listening today. All of our episodes can be found on my website, markhasera.com, under the podcast pull-down box. 
Look forward to having you again here with us next week on the Lessons from the Cockpit podcast, where I give you my perspective on Robert's Ridge and Operation Anaconda. Have a great week, folks.